Welcome to our 2023 Lenten Parish Retreat. My name is Andrew Darling. I'm the Communications Director. Uh, I would not normally be doing this sort of introduction, but Father Garrett has totally lost his voice. So on behalf of him, uh, welcome. He, he's here. We're, he's doing fine. He just can't speak. So thank you all for being here. Uh, this is going to be a really awesome three days, and I am uh, so excited to be a part of this and to be here. I just want to introduce our speaker a little bit, um, Father Joseph Paul Albin. He's the chaplain of the University of Dallas and the rector of the Church of the Incarnation there. And um, he's been a priest for, I guess, two or three years, ordained in 2020 in the midst of all of the pandemic, um, lockdowns and everything. Uh, but in just these few years that he's been a priest, uh, it's been really cool to see uh, his impact on the University of Dallas and on our um, just our diocese here. And so um, I'm really excited to hear from him. I think he'll be a great um, speaker for us this week. So I want to uh, thank and welcome up uh, Father Joseph Paul Alvin. Hello. It's great to be here. Uh, we're going to start this like we start all good things with a prayer and a hymn. So I'm going to invite everyone to stand up uh, just so that we make sure we stay awake for the full 90 minutes. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, a friar now, so I get up much earlier than I used to. Uh, so this is going to be nearly past my bedtime when we end, but we will make it. Uh, the opening prayer I want to use is actually a traditional Catholic prayer that's prayed before the crucifix. And so if you all want to just look towards our Lord on the crucifix, a reminder of where we're headed this Lent. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Look down upon me, good and gentle Jesus, while before thy face I humbly kneel, and with burning soul pray and beseech thee, to fix deep in my heart lively sentiments of faith, hope, and charity, true contrition for my sins, and a firm purpose of amendment, while I contemplate with great love and tender pity the five most precious wounds, pondering over them within me, and calling to mind the words which David thy prophet said of thee, my Jesus. They have pierced my hands and my feet, they have numbered all my bones. Amen. Your hymn will be in the red one in 434. Four. Sacred head surrounded by crown of piercing thorn, O bleeding head so wounded, reviled and put to scorn, the power of death comes o'er you. The Sweet come back. 
passion unworthy though I be beneath your cross abiding forever would I rest in your dear love confiding and with your Please be seated. So before we get into the night in a more substantial way, I just want to share a little bit about who I am. I think we're a little bit better at listening when we know maybe who we're listening to. And so I just want to share a little bit of, of my life, my story, uh, and how I ended up here. Uh, so we have the incredibly condensed version. I am one of four boys. I was raised in Mexico, Missouri, tiny little town in Missouri, uh, not particularly Catholic. Both my older brothers actually have left the church and are different types of evangelical. Uh, and that actually kind of set me on a, a strange course because I thought if they could leave the church, so could I. Uh, but I did not go find another church. Uh, I discovered, uh, well, beer. Uh, that was a, a big discovery um, and ruined a lot of otherwise good and holy weekends in my life that could have been something for the Lord. Uh, and then when I went to college, I actually spent the first couple years in college uh, being a fairly uh, ridiculous, outrageous person uh, and somehow managed to still get B's and C's. Uh, but then I had a moment of just sort of existential crisis. I, I think I matured just enough to go, uh, does this mean anything, this life that I have? And I started to ask really big questions and found that there weren't really great answers. Uh, and so I actually first became a philosophy major uh, and wasn't particularly excited by the answers of the with new philosophy, uh, and then I actually joined a Buddhist sangha. Uh, there were no Asian people. Uh, it was all uh, older white people. Uh, but I did discover uh, that some vegan food is quite delicious. Uh, that was my primary discovery uh, among the Buddhists. Uh, and eventually, I snuck into a Catholic church, and I decided to sit in the very back. I got there late and left early, because I didn't want anyone to actually find me. I was afraid, like, what if someone sees me here? And I would tell my roommate, there was a, a 7 p.m. mass on Sundays, and I would tell my roommate that I was going to go to the bar, uh, and instead would secretly go to church. And one weekend, he was like, you're lying. And I was like, I would not lie about going to the bar. And he was like, there was a bulletin in your car. Um, and he was like, I went to find you last weekend at the bar, and you weren't there. And I was like, wow, what is wrong with me that I'm, I'm deceiving those that I love about what I think is most important? And I actually ended up going on an awakening retreat, which we just had one this past weekend. It's the Curcio model, if anyone ever went on that retreat. And I went on that retreat and had a, just a really powerful experience of community. And it was the first time I met other young Catholics that, that were on fire, that actually cared. And I realized that many of my questions that I thought were, were unanswerable, uh, that uh, the Catholic Church had been around a while, <laughs> and there were some incredibly intelligent people that God had put in the church, and every question that I thought no one could answer, uh, someone has at least seriously thought through a time or two. And in that intellectual journey, I ended up having a really strong reversion, and then ended up working for the church and then lived in a church for a year. If you're familiar with Harry Potter, I felt a bit like Hagrid, because um, every, like the kids liked me, but the adults were like, why is this young guy here and what's he doing? And I had the keys and I had to open and lock the church every day. Um, but when you live with the Eucharist, <laughs> and when you actually wake up and Jesus is in your home, uh, 
it changes you. When you actually have the chance to visit the chapel every day and you feel pretty foolish, you know, coming home to the church, if you've had a couple drinks or been out and been ridiculous, you get home to church and you're like, sorry, Lord. You know, you're like trying to walk by the sacristy and the tabernacle and you're like, don't look at me, don't look at me, uh, as though that's his only source of vision. Uh, certainly, <laughs> he saw me. And it was then that I started actually discerning vocation, uh, but it took me another six years to enter. And part of it was I thought that someone like me um, wasn't fit for the priesthood. I thought someone who had sinned in the way that I had, who'd been so far away from the faith, who had challenged church teachings publicly, uh, that that's not the kind of person the church would have room for. Uh, then, luckily, I did two things. I uh, read the good book and found out Jesus has a preferential option uh, for the losers, the broken, and the downtrodden, and I was like, three checks. <laughs> I was like, I'm in, baby. Jesus is on my side. Uh, and then I went and lived in religious community and realized that these were not saints, uh, but instead these were men who had an extraordinary calling and were working out their salvation like the rest of us. And while that in some ways de-romanticized religious life for me, it also made me realize that this is somewhere that I could actually go, that it's okay that I'm not yet a finished product, that I don't have to wait to be perfect in our, to enter religious life. And so when I was 29, I took the plunge. I actually had my novitiate in Irving, about 25 minutes from here. We have a small priory there at the University of Dallas. Then I did six years in seminary. And then uh, 2020, best year ever. We all, we all remember it with fondness, I'm sure. Uh, I got ordained that summer and actually got assigned back to the University of Dallas and ended up living with the priest who formed me my first years in the order. Uh, so a bit of a homecoming and then also a bit of a challenge because uh, then I had to be like, no, I'm a grown-up now too. <laughs> like, I'm also at the table. <laughs> like, I, I'm here. Uh, and so started ministering there and have now been there for a little over two and a half years and I love it. Uh, I love what God has done <laughs> at that church. I love working with young people. It's an absolute joy and really helps me to want to be a better priest. Uh, so it's a little bit about me. Uh, but one of the things I'll say about working with young people and one of the challenges that I had is that there's a lot of things that <laughs> challenge our faith, that shake our faith, that can can overwhelm us. And sometimes it seems as though the church maybe doesn't have good answers or we haven't thought through them. And one of those things that I think is real for all of us, that I think anyone who has lived more than about, oh, six years could probably call out, is suffering. That we all have some kind of real suffering. And so what I want to talk about over these next three nights is exactly that. We'll end up at redemptive suffering, uh, which is where we're headed. But to just give a roadmap for those of you that are like, I want to know where we're going, uh, which is a completely valid thing to desire, this first night we're going to talk a little bit about what is suffering and why did Jesus suffer on the cross. Tomorrow night we're going to talk a little bit about the theology of redemptive suffering. And on the last night we're going to talk about the lived experience of redemptive suffering, and also how to suffer with others. Uh, things that I think all of us who have ever lived have, have experienced, have sometimes failed at, and hopefully by the end of this we can all feel uh, a little bit better <laughs> about the questions of suffering. I'll also say that I'm not a theologian. I've only been a priest for three years, and I'm going to be 40 this year, so a lot of you know a lot more about suffering and have a lot more experience in this world than I do. And so I do not claim to be uh, an expert, but I more want us to think of this as a way to, to contemplate mystery, to actually enter into the mystery of what it means to be Christian and how to reconcile that with suffering, the suffering of Jesus, our own suffering, and the suffering in the world. Uh, so a very Lenten topic. Uh, but I do joke a lot, so even though we're talking about suffering, I will throw in some humor so that we don't get too down, because uh, uh, I think uh, part of 
the Christian life, part that attracted me, is joy. Uh, joy is one of the most infallible signs of the presence of God. And so when we meet joyful people, uh, they attract to the church. Uh, I will say very, very truthfully, doom and gloom Christians have done a lot to hurt the church. Uh, nobody's like, oh my gosh, look at that group of suffering, grieving, awful, sad people. Oh, I want to be with them. Uh, and the kind of people that do feel that way are probably not the people we want to join today. Um, that, that we want to convert their hearts to the life of joy. Uh, the, the, there's something good and holy and actually even joyful in the center of the cross. Uh, and that's a hard thing to reconcile. But what I want to do each night is we'll start like I did with that prayer before the cross. I think it's a beautiful prayer. And then we'll sing a hymn each night, and then we'll go into what we're going to do now, which is just a, a very shortened form of Lexio Divina, uh, where I'm just going to read a passage twice, uh, and I just want everyone to just kind of close their eyes and enter into it, and just if you hear a certain phrase to know that uh, the Word of God is living and effective. You know, as we heard in the Gospel yesterday, man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so what I want to read tonight is actually Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And I want to start with it because I think it points to suffering. It actually ends in glory. But most importantly, that Jesus, who is in some way the author of everything, through whom everything was created, and both Matthew and Mark quotes this psalm on the cross. And it gives us the freedom to be okay with the fact that sometimes life is really hard. If our own Lord can say, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why can we not? Why can we not be honest in our prayer? And I'll get to more of that later. But for now, I just invite you to just close your eyes. And I'm just going to read through this psalm twice, slowly. It's a bit of a long boy. It has four sections. So, you know, just enter into it. And just if something grabs onto you, if you hear a line or a sentence that calls to you, Feel free to stay with that. You don't have to um, hang on every single word I say. But if a line speaks to you, hold on to that phrase, because uh, maybe God is speaking into your heart tonight. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why so far from my call for help, from my cries of anguish? My God, I call by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I have no relief. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the glory of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you rescued them. To you they cried out and they escaped. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by men, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They curl their lips and jeer. They shake their heads at me. He relied on the Lord. Let him deliver him. If he loves him, let him rescue him. For you drew me forth from the womb made me safe at my mother's breast. Upon you I was thrust from the womb. Since my mother bore me, you are my God. Do not stay far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Fierce bulls of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me, lions that rend and roar. Like water, my life drains away. All my bones are disjointed. My heart has become like wax. It melts away within me. As dry as a potsherd is my throat, my tongue cleaves to my palate. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of evildoers closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. But you, Lord, do not stay far off. 
Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the grip of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, my poor life from the horns of wild bulls. Then I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord give praise. All descendants of Jacob give honor. Show reverence all descendants of Israel. For he has not spurned or disdained the misery of this poor wretch. Do not turn away from me, but heard me when I cried out. I will offer praise in the great assembly. My vows I will fulfill before those who fear him. The poor will eat their fill. Those who seek the Lord will offer praise. May your hearts enjoy life forever. At the ends of the earth, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of nations will bow low before him. For kingship belongs to the Lord, the ruler over the nations. All who sleep in the earth will bow low before God. All who have gone down into the dust will kneel in homage, and I will live for the Lord. My descendants will serve you. The generation to come will be told of the Lord, that they may proclaim to a people yet unborn the deliverance you have brought. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why so far from my call for help, from my cries of anguish? My God, I call by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I have no relief. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the glory of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you rescued them. To you they cried out and they escaped, and you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by men, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They curl their lips and jeer. They shake their heads at me. He relied on the Lord. Let him deliver him. If he loves him, let him rescue him. For you drew me forth from the womb, made me safe at my mother's breast. Upon you I was thrust from the womb. Since my mother bore me, you are my God. Do not stray from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Fierce bulls of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me, lions that rend and roar. Like water, my life drains away. All my bones are disjointed. My heart has become like wax. It melts away within me. As dry as a potsherd is my throat, my tongue cleaves to my palate. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of evildoers closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. But you, Lord, do not stay far off. My strength come quickly to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the grip of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. My poor life from the horns of wild bulls. Then I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord give praise. All descendants of Jacob give honor. Show reverence all descendants of Israel. For he has not spurned or disdained the misery of this poor wretch. Did you not turn away from me, but heard me when I cried out? I will offer praise in the great assembly. My vows I will fulfill before those who fear him. The poor will eat their fill. Those who seek the Lord will offer praise. May your hearts enjoy life forever. 
All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of nations will bow low before him. For kingship belongs to the Lord, the ruler over the nations. All who sleep in the earth will bow low before God. All who have gone down into the dust will kneel in homage. And I will live for the Lord. My descendants will serve you. The generation to come will be told of the Lord, that they may proclaim to him a people yet unborn, the deliverance you have brought. powerful psalm. We pray that on Passion Sunday. We hear it again on Good Friday. And I think something to just reflect on throughout the Lenten season. Uh, Again, I just think, (laughs) for me, uh, the fact that our Lord speaks this on the cross, I think, allows us to enter into our own suffering in in a free way. I think we're so often afraid to lament or complain Uh, One of the the things that I hope we take away from these three days is that uh, one of the ridiculous things we do is whenever we're suffering, uh, we make sure that we offer lots of caveats to people. I just had a really good friend who went through an ectopic pregnancy last summer. Uh, Terrible. And she really suffered. And when I went to anoint her, she kept saying, well, other people have it really bad. I mean, I have a loving husband. I have a support system. Things are going really well for me. And I eventually just said to her, like, it's okay to be sad and angry. Like, you don't have to say that other people are having it worse. Pain and suffering is not a zero-sum game. You don't have to make excuses for having a hard time. And especially with your fellow Christians, with your brothers and sisters who will lift you up, that is the place to say, right now this is hard. And I think this psalm gives us the freedom to do that and to bring those same kinds of prayers to God. Sit down in the chapel to kneel and say, Lord, I am angry, I'm hurt, and I don't know what to do. That's a really good and powerful prayer. So, suffering. One of the the things that I think I've done a lot in my life um, is I've hid from my priesthood. Uh, I've hid from my life as a religious. I don't always have to wear a habit. And so there's times where I'm I'm out in the world and I'm like, well, good, no one knows. Uh, Because then if I'm at the airport, no one can say, hey, Father, real quick, could you hear my confession? Uh, Because I work at a Catholic college. I have 1,500 undergrads. And also, it's never, it's never quick, but it's always real. Um, you know, they're always like, real quick, real quick. And I'm like, no, you're tricking me. Uh, and I remember I actually, once I was in New Orleans, and this is actually right before I entered, but I was a full-time campus minister, and I was going to college. I was in grad school for a degree in pastoral counseling. And I went to this jazz club. I was going to listen to this jazz funk trio. And I sat down at the bar. I got a beer. A lot of beer in these stories. Um, But I sat down at the bar. And these two girls sat next to me. And we started chatting. And eventually they were like, what do you do? And I was like, I'm a grad student. Uh, You know, and I was a full-time campus minister. But I was like, I'm a grad student. They're like, what do you study? I was like, I study philosophy. Because that was true. I was taking some philosophy courses. (laughs) You know, I wasn't like totally lying. And they were like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. We study philosophy too. And so we started chatting about different philosophers. And eventually one of the girls said, we have to get back before curfew. And I was like, we are all like 30. Like, and they were like, oh, well, we're, uh, we snuck out of the Baptist seminary. (laughs) And I was like... I mean, good for you, having a beer. I mean, God bless them. But I was like, oh, I'm entering religious life next year, and I'm a campus minister, and I'm also studying theology. Um, We were so afraid of having to be inconvenienced by our faith that we we hid it from one another. It could have been a moment of of actual like ecumenism and a beautiful discussion. We're like, let's hide that. Let's keep that away. 
There's something about us that, that makes us want to not inconvenience other people, not just with our pain and suffering, but actually just with our very faith. What if, I, what if I let people know I'm actually really Catholic? Well, then we'll have to have some weird conversations. I might ruin Thanksgiving. Um, you know, it's like we don't want to do that. But at the same time, uh, Jesus didn't say at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, go and baptize all nations unless it's a little inconvenient and we'll make your holidays weird, then be quiet about it and, you know, don't tell anyone. Uh, that's not what he said. We're actually supposed to go forth and preach. Um, I'm a Dominican, uh, so when people are like, St. Francis said, preach, if necessary, use words. I'm like, number one, there's no proof he said that. Number two, what a silly thing. Um, I've never been converted because I watched someone be really nice. Uh, you know, like that's a good starting point, but if we don't follow that up with actually saying, the reason I'm doing this is because I believe in the triune God. <laughs> like it's like, I like that people do good things, but if I have no idea why they're doing them, I don't really care. But still, we seem to, to hide from our faith. And there was another time I was actually, I was at a concert with a bunch of good friends that I had from college in St. Louis. And when the concert was over, we're all standing outside. And it was 10 o'clock at night. And we were kind of trying to figure out, should we go home? We're kind of old now, so it's probably our bedtime. And uh, my friend Jim had maybe had a couple beers again, my goodness. Uh, and he pointed to this guy and he was like, this is Tim, this is my friend, he's a priest. And I was like, no, I was like, please don't tell him. I don't want this guy to know we're having a good time. You know, this could really, this could really ruin the vibe if this guy knows. And the guy looked at me and then we chatted for just a few sentences and then he went, are you seriously a priest? And I said, well, not yet. I won't be ordained for a few years, but I'm, I'm currently what you'd think of as a seminarian. I wasn't going to try to explain religious life uh, on a curb. Uh, and he went, so you actually believe in God? And I was like, yeah. And, you know, it's suddenly feeling courageous, and I was like, I'm ready for this. And then he looked at me, and he was like, how do you reconcile all of the evil and awfulness in the world and how Christians treat one another with your good God? And I was like, I'm ready. You know, I thought I was ready. And because we'd, we'd had a class, this problem is called theodicy. This is the, the technical term. It's like, how do we reconcile an all good, all loving, all knowing God with the terrible suffering and evil in the world, right? And I was like, well, see, God wants us to have freedom so much. That, that he lets us choose him no matter what. And I said, you know, it's like being a parent. When you're a parent, you know, there's times you let your children try things, even you know it might hurt them. And I said, you know, a parent who lets their child ride a bicycle knows that they might fall off and scrape their knee, but they still send them out on the bicycle. And I was like, I got this. This guy's gonna be a Christian by tomorrow, right? <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, that's your explanation for cancer and dying children. And I was like, well, I lost this one. I was like, I don't, uh, yeah. You know, I was like, I don't, you know, and, and then the guy just walked away. And, and I realized that, that I was so excited about my answer that, that I thought I had him and that I wasn't actually really preaching, I was trying to just prove a point. I wasn't actually trying to live my faith, I just was like, I got this guy cornered, I've read about this moment, and I know what to do. And instead of just inviting him into a really honest conversation where I said, here's what I think, but I gotta be honest, I don't know. It's okay, and the question of the great mysteries of God to say that there are mysteries and that we don't know. But instead, in my pride, I decided that this guy needed to hear the best answer I had, and so I forced away someone that I could have had a really good conversation with. So I went home and was like, great, I'm pretending I'm not a religious in public, and I just ran off someone who might have had an encounter with Jesus if I had had the humility to actually say, I don't know. I actually just looked up statistics today. In religious attitudes in the wake of COVID, 67% of people's faith were shaken by the pandemic. These are believers, people that say they believe in God. 
A recent Pew survey actually said that only 51% of Catholics believe that God permitted suffering as part of a larger plan. That means one out of two <laughs> of people that identify as Catholic just say, I don't know why we suffer. Uh, I hope it's not God. And I get it. I can say that I understand that question deeply because if we look at history, we look at just the history of the church, there's some grave evil and some terrible things that I think we still need to make recompense for, we need to offer our sufferings for, and I as a priest especially need to spend a lot of time saying sorry for. If we look, you know, we try to reconcile God and the Holocaust, God and pandemics, if we try to reconcile God and what we call acts of God, that's hard work. It's not something we normally want to consider. Once when teaching Sunday school, a fourth grader asked me if earthquakes were evil. And I was like, this kid. <laughs> I was like, what a hard, hard question to answer. Like, is an earthquake evil? If people die in it, do we want to call that an act of God? Is that something that we want to say our all good God did? But in the New Testament, Christ actually does allude to this kind of situation. When 18 people died as a result of a tower collapsing, he said, those 18 people who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell, do you think they were more guilty than everyone else who lived in Jerusalem? By no means. But you know what he then doesn't do? Give an answer as to why. He doesn't then say, but, but here's why God did it. He doesn't say, he doesn't then immediately fill in that gap that we so want. But I have to say that I think part of the problem is that we've accepted everyone else's idea of God as a way of communicating. Because if we actually read scripture, no one in the Bible seems to have this problem. No one in the Bible is like, why is there suffering in an all good God? I think instead we've largely accepted the philosophical concept of God that many new age thinkers have and we're like, we have to answer to that. But in the Bible, God's loving existence and suffering coexist from the word go and nobody seems all that confused or upset about it. I mean, Cain and Abel, uh, our first example of brotherhood, <laughs> that did not go well. Uh, immediately they're suffering, but we don't immediately see the good brother go, then God couldn't exist. If we look at Noah, who actually had to watch the world be flooded, all it did was increase his faith. We can look to Abraham, who spent a life with a wife who wasn't able to actually have a child. That's still an incredibly hard reality in a marriage today. At that point, it meant that <laughs> You were not loved or honored by God. And then once he has that child, he's asked to walk him up a mountain and offer him back to the Lord. And God stopped his hand, but a lot of suffering. Moses' life was no easy thing. <laughs> Moses had a really, really hard go of it. And Moses, after doing everything God says, doesn't even get to enter the promised land after following God with his whole life and doing every single thing that he offers, he dies when he can see it. The prophets, oh, you want to talk about some suffering? The prophets did not fare well. Jeremiah actually writes, I'm ridiculed all day and all mock me. In the book of Lamentations attributed to him, for these things I weep, my eyes, my eyes, they stream with tears, how far from me is anyone to comfort, anyone to restore my life? My children are desolate. The enemy has prevailed. But in all of the book of Lamentations, I reread it today. Uh, not a joyful book. The title is right. Uh, but never is there a doubt of God. God's existence is never doubted once. And if we look at Isaiah... And especially if you want some good Lenten reading, chapters 40 to 55, I think, are the, the height of Old Testament theology. They are powerful, powerful chapters. Here we have the prediction of the suffering servant. 
where we say that the one who is to come will have his beard plucked, his back beaten, that he will be completely in terrible suffering, that that is what he will be for his people. And then in the midst of that, Isaiah goes back and forth talking about how God is somehow also incredibly close to us. He says that we are carved into the palm of his hand. It's pretty close. And then he also then says he is higher than we can ever be and we will not understand him, all in 15 chapters. The imminence and transcendence of God surrounding suffering, and yet no clear answer is given. To return to the question, is part of the blame our own fault? Is part of the blame my fault? That we haven't actually preached the God of the Bible, where suffering is more or less taken for granted, and we've been bad at presenting the world as it is. One of the images that really sticks with me is Jacob. Jacob is one of my favorite characters in the Bible because, uh, man, was he bad. <laughs> and then God was like, I'm going to change your life and follow you the whole way through. And I'm like, I know that guy. Uh, big fan. Jacob, from the word go, uh, is trying to pull up one on his brother Esau. He actually holds on to his foot in the womb because he wants to try to get out first because that would make it his birthright. So literally, in the womb, he's already plotting. And then there's a really strange story where he like basically glues hair to his chest because his brother Esau was hairy and he wasn't. And then his blind dad, Isaac, touched him and he's like, you are the one who gets my birthright, which is just really weird. Um, it's like if my dad was ever trying blind and was like, I want to know who my children are by the touch of their bodies, I'd be like, you should know my voice. Uh, I'm 40. Uh, but, <laughs> but Jacob does all of this. Jacob has all of these ulterior motives. He makes all of these terrible choices. And then he has these powerful theophanies, these encounters with God. And the one that he has that I love I believe it's Genesis 28. I should have wrote it down, but I think it's Genesis 28. If not, it's around there. Look for it. Um, wouldn't be bad if you read Extra Bible, searching for a passage. Uh, but <laughs> Jacob actually gets into a fight with an angel, and the angel is revealed to be God. And what happens to Jacob in that fight? He holds the angel and demands that he tells his name. He never gets the name. And then the guy injures him so badly that he walks away with a limp. When we search for God, in our earnest effort even to search for God, there are times where we walk away injured and suffering. And we don't know why. We don't have a good answer. Now, God, as we've been talking about, occasionally answers are given. When we talk about God in the Bible, that we do actually occasionally see among the prophets that it's for suffering of sin. Occasionally we see that there's some kind of purging or pruning. But if we're honest, a lot of the suffering that we've seen and walked with does not fit into that category. Instead, we have to look again to those Isaiah passages. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. We won't usually understand suffering. And that's hard. And in only three years of priesthood, I've had this happen a couple times. I actually had parents come to me who wanted to have their child baptized that weekend. And I was like, um, normally you've got to wait more than four days. And they were like, uh, our baby has a serious heart defect, and we think that he might die in the surgery. And if the surgery goes well, he'll have to have about two or three more. And I said, okay, well, then we will baptize the baby. I was wrong. And so uh, this sweet little baby, uh, we baptized him on that Saturday morning. And then he had to go through some serious surgeries. He was about 18 months old and had been very sick. Now, until the end of the story, he's doing very well, and I see him at Sunday Mass fairly often, so just so everyone's heart can sink back down, and they're like, oh, thank goodness. Um, but the dad came to me because when the baby was healing, he was in terrible pain. 
and he had no way to comfort him. He had no way to explain it to him. And he actually said to me, I wish I could explain to him that these things are good for him and that he actually needs these so that he can live. And I wonder if in our own pain, if our own suffering, if that's sometimes how God feels about us. That when suffering is offered to us, that when suffering is handed to us, God, it's like talking to babies. He's like, I want to be able to explain to you why you're going through this. But you don't have the capacity or the wherewithal to understand. But I will hold you, and I will love you, and I will be with you, and I will stand by you every moment. I think that's what the fatherhood of God looks like in suffering. That he can't explain to us always why he's doing what he's doing. One more example from the Bible, and probably the best book on suffering in the Bible, is Job. Job is a good man. That's how the book starts out. It's like, Job is favored by God. He is, I mean, he is one of the best. He's killing it. He's, he's at church on time. He never leaves early. He <laughs> puts money in the plate, but you never see how much because he's so humble. You know, this is the, this is the guy. And then he has sent terrible suffering upon terrible suffering upon terrible suffering. And if you read the whole book, Job never once actually even says that God is bad or hurting him, let alone argues that somehow this disproves the existence of a good God. But what does he do? He actually laments that Job is upset and sad and forlorn and beats his chest and laments. He complains and he weeps. Question I have for myself often, for my students, and tonight for you, is why are we so afraid to bring that kind of honesty to prayer? I think part of it might be that as Catholics, we're really good at devotionals. I'm going to pray that rosary. I'm going to pray that divine mercy chaplet. We're really good at, you know, reading through the scriptures before we get to mass. We're really good at those kind of rote prayers that don't require from us an intimate knowledge of who we are. And as Catholics, also liturgically, we're really good at dressing prayers up. Almighty and ever-living God, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. And you're like, I'm already like pretty deep into this prayer. But to sit down in front of the Lord and say, I don't know why this awful thing is happening, and I am mad as hell at you. That seems to be something that we won't let come to our lips. While the psalmist can say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? While Job can lament and complain. While the psalmist says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Turn your face away from me, God, for I am a sinful man. When the psalmist says, I do not even believe you are awake, we're afraid of saying anything to God. It's like we think we're powerful enough we can hurt him. We think that we're strong enough that somehow that his little fragile ego might be disrupted by our questions, our doubts, or our struggles. But instead, I want to offer another one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 51, verse 19. My offering, O God, is a broken spirit. You will not spurn a contrite and humbled heart. My offering, the one thing I have to give to you, God, not this great life that I've lived, not all my incredible accolades, not all the wonders that it is, not the gift to the church that I obviously am. No, what I have to offer you, God, is my broken spirit. And I believe that when we do that, God smiles and says, that's all I wanted. That's the one thing I wanted to return back to that image of a father holding a child who we can't explain 
why he's hurting. He wants us to reach out <laughs> and cling to him, to rest in him, to find him as refuge, even when we're angry and don't know the words to say. When Jesus laments, when Jesus says, let this cup pass from me, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He shares in our abandonment. He shares in our abandonment. He lets us enter into his suffering. And I think it's easy to ask if Jesus needed to suffer. If we actually look at the cross and contemplate it, it's horrific. It's an awful, terrible, ghastly way to die. Did Jesus need to suffer? Short answer is no. Uh, Augustine puts it this way. We assert that the way whereby God deigned to deliver us by the man Jesus Christ, who is mediator between God and man, is both good and befitting the divine dignity. But let us also show that other possible means were not lacking in God's part, to whose power all things are equally subordinate. If you didn't catch all of that and translate it quickly enough, God gets to do what God wants to do that God gets to do whatever he wants. So then that means that in some way, God wanted this path. Was the suffering of Jesus necessary for us? Aquinas, my brother, good old Dominican, says that it was fitting and good. Fitting and good that Jesus dies this way. Now, as we enter into this, the last part of my talk, I want to say that, again, I'm not going to give you a perfect answer, but hopefully, instead, ways to contemplate the mystery of the crucifixion. Christians, I think, all of us seem to face a dilemma, because if God could have made salvation possible in some other way, and we agree that God is all-powerful and all-knowing, so he could have, why would he choose the way of so much blood, pain, and agony? Wouldn't something less frightful and terrifying have been better? And to some people, it seems like there's only two possibilities, right? If the crucifixion was the only means God could find to redeem us, then he's a limited and weak God. Surely an almighty and wise deity could have found a better way. Or, on the other hand, if God preferred choosing a horrible death for his own son over other options, then he is a cruel and wicked judge. Good metaphor is thinking of uh, if you're in, in a courthouse and there's someone who's done a terrible, awful crime, and then the judge's son walked in and said, uh, instead of him, kill me. None of us would look at that judge and be like, what a guy. He picked the right guy. Instead, that would compound and make those justice, uh, injustice worse. So there has to be some other option. Instead... I think we have to look back to the question of suffering. If God is all-powerful, all-wise, and all-good, then why did Christ have to suffer? Any of you that have been married for a while, and there's enough of you that look uh, mature, that are sitting close to each other, that I'm going to guess that some of you have been married for more than five or six years, uh, you know that love without suffering becomes rhetoric and that suffering without love is actually not able to be endured. Think of couples who spend years and years and years and years together. There's a lot of suffering in learning to love well, learning to forgive, and moving forward. Parents who've had children that have disappointed and been quote-unquote hard to raise or that have been terribly sick or ill, there is long, long suffering. But Jesus shows us that this kind of love is actually redemptive and powerful. Jesus, who on Holy Thursday begins this mystery, the sacramentum caritatis, the sacrament of love, actually shows us that he doesn't lose his life on Good Friday, but instead he gives it to us. Jesus, who is brokenhearted and is dying, sees the abandonment of all humankind. 
And we often hear that the suffering on the cross is some of the worst suffering. And then if we think about it, we're like, well, there's people who were in prison camps who had much longer suffering. There's people I know that were sick for years and years and years. And we can begin to get into a kind of a strange game. But we have to think about quality. And we know that a broken heart, a desperately broken heart, is worse than a broken arm. And so if the sacred heart, which has a more profound and deep love for everyone, through whom all people were made, has to then be rejected by all of those people, that quality of love is more suffering than we could ever imagine. But that love does not diminish our capacity to suffer. Instead, it enlarges it. The more that we love someone when they suffer, when they abandon, when they hurt, the harder it is. Love instead allows us to give consent to suffering as a true sacrifice. And that's what we'll look at, especially on Wednesday. Instead, Aquinas gives four reasons, and I will quote Aquinas throughout the next three days because he's way smarter than I will ever be. Uh, but he gives four reasons as to why the cross and the suffering had to happen as it did. He offers first that whatever our sins have done to diminish God's glory in the world, the cross and its mercy shows the fullness and deepness of God's mercy. And that there's in fact a super abundant grace harkens back to the 12 baskets left over, that our God is a God of abundance. And so Christ is offering to God a satisfaction for our sins that is more than we needed. Augustine puts it this way, for what else could have been so necessary to build up our hope and to free the minds of mortals despairing because of their mortality than that God should show us how highly he valued us and how greatly he loved us and what could be more clear and evident proof of God's great love than that the Son of God, so undeserving of evil, should bear all of our evil. The passion demonstrates that the love is costly to God and that love will be costly to us as well. Aquinas then continues that line of thought. He noted that our reconciliation with God and becoming like him requires more than simple forgiveness. He wrote that in the Passion, many other things besides deliverance from sin came together for man's salvation. He points out, secondly, that Christ's Passion moves us not only to have faith and hope in God, it also motivates us to be grateful, to have a grateful love for God. He writes, by this man knows how much God loves him and is thus stirred to love him in return. In this loving response lies the perfection of human salvation. And that's why the apostle says God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Our salvation isn't complete, brothers and sisters, without learning to love as God loves. That when we see the cross, we see Christ's passion, we realize that we aren't simply pardoned, but that God always goes the extra mile and turns the other cheek. In the crucifixion, we can see that. Yet there's more. Thirdly, Christ's suffering just doesn't move us to respond in love. It shows us how hard it is to love in a world that is broken. That the kind of love that we have to have, one that is obedient to Christ, will often be a suffering and hard love. Christ in this merits a great reward. Christ humbles himself so extravagantly. And lastly, Aquinas insisted that a fourth reason that God sent his son to suffer was so that we could actually see our own human dignity in a more real and profound way. In the Summa, he actually says, it redounded to humanity's greater dignity. To simply have God become man in the incarnation already exalted us. But in Christ's suffering, our grace was our race was granted more honor still. Aquinas writes, just as man overcame and deceived by the devil, so also should it be a man who should overthrow the devil. And since man deserved death, so it should be a man who by dying vanquishes death. That is why it is written, thanks be to God who has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
the human race had been left in bondage to sin, death, the devil, and the fall. And so there's actually a beautiful and poetic justice to God using a man, the God-man, to hold up all of humanity once again and show us our own incredible dignity. I don't claim that tonight I suddenly made all of you go, great, now I know exactly how suffering works, I'm okay with it, and now I'm, I'm just pleased as punch. I also am not gonna say that for a moment I think that I somehow made the cross somehow clear and consistent. The Council of Trent actually claims that Jesus' death on the cross and our salvation is the most compelling mystery. And I don't think that that's changed. We do have to be okay with saying, I don't know. And so with that, brothers and sisters, I will admit that I don't know. But I do know this, that through Jesus Christ and his death, I've been granted a life of freedom that I did not deserve or merit, and it has been a life of incredible joy and that that life has allowed me to endure the suffering of my brothers and sisters, my own, in a way that I never could. And so I don't know, but I do know that. Thank you. <laughs>